is episode 43 with country star and legend Mickey Gilly. Really enjoyed this conversation. I've known Mickey for a while and had a chance to work a bunch of shows with him, uh, along with my co-host, Brian Edwards. And we had a really great conversation. Uh, make sure you sit back, relax, enjoy our conversation with Mickey Gilly. <laughs> All right, we are live with Mickey Gilly, and I wish you could see him now because he's looking mighty fine, and uh, he's got a little COVID beard going on there. Looking good, Mickey. Nice to have you on the podcast. Um, it's an honor and a pleasure, and uh, at my age, it's a pleasure to be here. Mine too. <laughs> <laughs> also uh, joining us uh, as co-host once again, Brian Edwards at his uh, office in Peterborough. Hi, Brian, how are you doing? Oh, great, guys. It's good to be here. And uh, I, uh, I'm really, really looking forward to this. I've been thinking about this the last couple of days and all the great time we've had on the road with Mickey and the Urbanettes and uh, the, the the Cowboy Band and all that. It's just been, we've had so much fun. Darren and I talked about that the other night. The, one of the first dates we did was Medicine Hat, Alberta. And we drove straight back to Edmonton and back and forth and back and forth. And you got off that bus as fresh as a daisy. We're going to go. <laughs> I just mentioned earlier before we uh, started the uh, interview that uh, uh, I toured a lot with Conway and Loretta, you know. But the longest tour I ever think I ever took was with you when we went from Winnipeg all the way to Nova Scotia. And I said, now that was a ride. <laughs> well, if we're going to do it. We might as well give you some memories. That's, <laughs> That's my memory. I, it, it was a great time. I had a lot of fun up there, though. I don't mind telling you. We, I had a great time. Listen, you gave me a copy of your book um, several years ago, and I haven't been able over the years to sit down and take some time to read it. But I just finished it about three weeks ago. And boy, I'll tell you, going right back to those early days of the three of you together, your three cousins, and working your way up through the clubs and going all across the country in semi-tractor trailers and starting a theater in Branson. Oh, my God, what a career. Man. That was fabulous stuff. Well, I feel very honored that uh, I was accepted into the music industry back in, well, I started in 1957 when my cousin Julie came to, to sound singing a whole lot of shaking. And uh, that's when I thought at the time I'd throw my hat in the ring. And if I'd known it was going to take me 17 years to have a hit record, I might have had second thoughts. But I got into it. I love the music and I love the folks. I love the camaraderie I have with the audience. And um, I made my first record in 57, and 50-something years later, the Yo Play Yogurt Company used it in a commercial, which just blew, blew my dress up, so to speak. It was, <laughs> it was something I could not believe, you know, that they, they, they found this recording that only, only 500 copies of the record were pressed up, and, and 300 of them was destroyed in a fire. And when they sent me the, uh, the email they wanted to use it in a commercial, I said, you got the wrong ooey baby. <laughs> and so I get an email back, uh, you know, and they said, the one we have is by Mickey Gilly. And I'm thinking, where did they get this record at? Lo, lo and behold, you know, they uh, ended up uh, using it in a commercial and um, paid me a lot of money for it. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's I hope should. I paid taxes on it. i tell you how much. <laughs> <laughs> Just tell us how much you paid in taxes and we'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, I'm not, not going to be like Donald Trump now. I'm going to send you my tax forms. I know. <laughs> So, Mickey, let's go back, um, right back to the beginning. You were born in, in Mississippi, that's correct? Absolutely, yes. Uh, Natchez, Mississippi, uh, March of 9th, 1936. And what was it like 
being a young guy in Mississippi, what, what was school like for you? Did you enjoy going to school? Did you, were you excelling at anything? And did you think at all when you were young that you were going to be a singer or anything? No, when I was going to school, um, I never dreamed about what I would be doing later in life. Uh, I went to church all the time with my mom. And uh, of course, growing up with Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, Reverend Jimmy Swagger, he de- decided he was going to be a minister. Jerry Lee was messing around with piano as a, at a young age, seven or eight years old. Yeah. And uh, after, after all the things that we've done in our life, I've always said that Jerry Lee Lewis was probably the most talented person in our family. And of course, he hit back in the in the fifties with a whole lot of shaking and great balls of fire and all these tunes. And I was doing construction work in Houston, making a dollar twenty-five cents an hour because I, I came to Houston when I was like I was seventeen years old, yeah. and I quit school in the tenth grade. But lo and behold, um, I saw how well he was doing the music business, and I'm thinking if he could do this, I could too. Because I played piano, I wasn't I wasn't as good as Jerry, but I mean I could play well enough that uh, I got through it. Let's put it like that. I, I wasn't very good at the time. In fact, I told my producer later on after we had several number one songs, I said. We're two of the luckiest guys in the world, I said, because the majority of the songs we recorded back in the 70s made it number one. I don't know how they made it. But anyway, I had some success. It worked for sure. So when, when you were young uh, with Jerry, um, cousins, you hear you are three cousins. Did you guys live close to one another? Um, were you seeing each other all the time? Jerry Lee lived about uh, six or seven miles from where, where we were at in Faraday. He lived in a little place uh, 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 called, I think it was called Indian Village, and it was uh, outside of Clayton, Louisiana. And Clayton was about five miles from Faraday. Jimmy lived down the street on Jonesville Highway, which was about uh, maybe uh, maybe a mile and a half from where I lived at. But we all three went to the school uh, and uh, grew up there, you know, in the area. And uh, met around Faraday and rode the bikes and that type of thing. It's like normal teenagers. And you're all well, close to the same a, age, right? You're all within a year. I'm the youngest, and I'm uh, I'm 84. Uh, it's six months different in my age. I'm 84, and Jerry's fixing turn. I think uh, 85. Uh, he already, already has, yeah. I guess uh, he'll be 85 in September, I believe. Wow. And uh, and Jimmy Jimmy Jimmy's a year older than I am, so it's six months different in my age, and I'm the youngest. Yeah. So looking back now, it's it's pretty interesting that the three of you growing up close to one another would all become super famous, uh, but all kind of head slightly in different directions. Well, the interesting thing about what we've done, uh, I say what we've done, the interesting thing about what happened in our life and our career was the fact that we all three had success in a different kind of music. Yeah. Jerry Lee was in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He was, at, you know, was in the Rock and Roll field. I came along and had 17 number one country music songs. And uh, Jimmy is one of the biggest gospel selling uh, artists in the world. So we all three had success in a different kind of music. I even tried to get the Sirius XM to give us a channel and call it uh, the, the Cousins Channel, you know, and play Mickey Gilly, Jerry Lewis, and Reverend Swagger. Yeah. Which I think would be a, a dynamite, you know. But, uh, they never have come to the table with that. So do they you should. go ahead, Brian? <laughs> I'm going to say they should because that would be a big, big hit. It would be a lot of variety. I mean, I have had country songs, and of course, I've got a lot of albums out there, and I got a lot of music that nobody's ever heard before. That uh, that some, I had some great songs on some of my albums that never got uh, any attention because I wasn't a big album seller, but I, I was fortunate enough to have seventeen number one of my songs that they released go to number one for me. 
and I think I had a 39 top 10 hits. So out, out of the 17, uh, at 39 top 10, and out of the 39, 17 of them went number one. So that's what I'm trying to tell you. And, and, I, and you know, it, it's been a great ride. And, and I'm very fortunate that uh, some of the songs made it to where it did for, for Mickey Gilly because I look back on my career and I see things that I've done. I think that basically when I got the theater in Branson, Missouri, and I started doing my theater in Branson, I learned to be a more of a performer and entertainer yeah. at that time than ever before. Up until that time, you know, people would accuse me of copying my cousin, Jerry Lee. It bothered me when I first started out in the music business, but after I started having some hits and people say, what are you doing, copying your cousin, Jerry Lee? And I said, nope, trying to be exactly like him. <laughs> and I'd be having fun with it, you know? So it didn't matter what they thought, you know? I was having a good time. Yeah. And um, I went to see The Killer, by the way, not too long ago. And uh, he said, take a look at my Rolls Royce out there in the garage. I said, you got a Rolls Royce? You know how you got it? Chris Christopherson gave it to him. No <laughs> way. How's he doing, Ricky? Say again, Brian. How is Jerry Lee doing? Is he doing okay? He was sitting in a in a chair. I never did get to see him get up and walk, but uh, he was sitting in a chair, and we was got to reminisce about our growing up years in Louisiana together. And I told him before I left, I said, "You were my hero. If it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't be in the music business." And uh, so he's had a big part in changing my life. Uh, I love the guy. Excellent. 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 So Mickey, do you remember your very first piano um, that you made? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I lived upstairs over a bar in a one room place with my mom and my father. And she worked in a restaurant making $18 a week and saved up enough money to get me an old upright uh, piano that we had to nestle up the stairway to get it into the building. And, uh, and I'd get in trouble if I tried to play the boogie woogie. <laughs> she wanted me to play gospel. Oh, did she? Wow. So, I remember, yeah, absolutely. So you just self-taught? Did you did you get any lessons at all, or you just? Well, I picked up a lot from my cousin Jerry Lee. You know, I watched him play piano on many different occasions, and and when uh, he started having successful recordings, and I, I could uh, I could get very close to him on the on the. And I couldn't play as good as he played, but I could get close enough to him on the kind of being in the family. My voice was uh, a little bit higher than at that time. And uh, so I made a living a long time out of doing my cousin's music. I was actually doing a tribute to him and didn't realize it. Right. Now, I never tried to do my cousin Reverend Swagger's music because it was gospel and I was playing clubs. And I wasn't about to go in there and start singing gospel music in a nightclub. <laughs> so I, I tried to do the line, you know, but I play my cousin's music. But I've always loved a good country songs. I mean, I always loved the music like Hank Williams wrote, you know, Coco Hart and I Could Never Stop, you know, I, I Could Never Be Ashamed of You. and. Uh, you went again, and all these tunes that uh, uh, Hank Williams wrote uh, it, to me are just classic country music songs. And uh, then Merle Haggard comes along and starts writing all these great country songs. And I, I just uh, I fell in love with the uh, the country scene. And when I cut Room Full of Roses, I had no I didn't have any idea that, that song was going to be my first number one song nationally. Yeah. When I recorded that song, it was recorded actually for the B side. I went in to record "She Called Me Baby" all night long, the old Harlan Howard tune. I have the 300 jukeboxes, which was spread around through Houston and Pasadena because the lady had the jukebox in Gillies, asked me if I would do that for her. And I went in to make that recording. And as you know, back at that point in time, they were on 45 RPMs. You had an A side and a B side is what they called it back then. And so I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to cut Room Full of Roses as the B side. Nobody's ever going to hear it, so who cares? 
So I made an arpeggio on the piano and I started into the song and I got about halfway through it, about 20 seconds, 25 seconds into the song. And I stopped and uh, the bass guitar player looked at me and he says, what'd you quit for? I said, I think it's going to sound too much like my cousin, Jerry Lewis. He said, who cares? Nobody's ever going to hear it. It's going to be the B side. I said, you got a point. I went ahead and recorded. I think anything about it. It came out. I took it to the radio stations. We were buying time advertising Gillies on the country stations. I took it to the country stations and I asked the DJs, I said, can y'all play one side of this recording? One of these recordings when you do the ad on Gillies, which side you want to play? I said, either side you want to, it doesn't matter to me, you know, and I'm thinking they're going to play She Called Me Baby. First guy that listened to it was Bruce Nelson at KENR Radio in Houston, Texas. He listened to it and he says, I kind of like the flower song. I'm thinking, okay. <laughs> and bingo. I mean, you know, he put it on and the phone lit up, you know, where did this record come from? You know, and I, I had a hit record. Wow. Yes, you did. Yeah. <laughs> Four Roses. In fact, uh, um, uh, I remember, you know, that, that song led to me uh, touring with Conway Loretta. And I used to tell a story in the show. I might have, you might have heard, Brian might have heard me say this on one of my tours. I have fun with it. You know, I said, I couldn't believe, you know, when Room Full of Roses hit and, and we'd go to a truck stop, Conway would get off, off of the bus and everybody knew him. So he had to be real careful. Nobody knew who in the heck I was, you know. I walk in and yeah, I'll send a rose. I said, that's me, that's me. <laughs> I'm screaming and hollering. Because <laughs> it was all a jukebox. It was a jukebox record. So let's go back again. Do you remember your first sh- paying show um, that you actually got paid for? Uh, I think I paid. I worked for about five bucks a night. I didn't know very many songs. Yeah. About six or eight songs, you know. Wasn't very, wasn't, I mean, I was the teeny bopper back then, you know. The, yeah. the, we would put out a record and uh, then we'd make all the teen hops around Houston. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I think uh, my first one was about five, five or eight bucks, something like that. It wasn't very much. And where were the taxes on five or eight bucks? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I paid any taxes on it, but I don't want to go back that far anyway. <laughs> so what, what year did you end up starting the club? You, you, you started the club, what, back in early 70s? We, we opened the nightclub up in uh, March of 1971. 71. I had worked, uh, I had worked down the street from where Gillies was located at on Spencer Highway. I had worked at a club called Vanessadale. I worked there for 10 years. Wow. And a guy conned me into going across town, going to double my salary, what I was making at the time, which was, a, I think I was making about $185 a week or something like that. And he came over to me and he said, I'm going to double your salary. You come, you come over across town. I took the band, I left, I went across town after 10 years working this club. And um, it was a con job. And uh, Mr. Cryer that I ended up in business with with Gillies came out and said, uh, why did you leave? And I told him, he said, I, he thought I owned that club, Vanessa Dale, and I didn't, I didn't have a part of it. So he says, you need to come back to Pasadena. And I got this place, you need to come take a look at it. I made a meet, I had a meeting with him and the first thing I told him was, he said, what do you think? And I says, Need to take a dozer and clean this thing off and start over. He says, "No, I can fix it." But all it was was an old metal building, you know. Oh, yeah. And so he said, uh, "What do you think it needs?" I said, "Well, you need a acoustical tile ceiling for one thing and, and the roof." I said, "Because you can't play music in a tin building; it's going to bounce everywhere." I said, "You need new, new chairs and tables, and you need to tile the floor, and you need a front uh, for the building. You know, not give it the metal building look." And that time, I went through on and on and on, you know. But they had a great big beautiful sign out there. 
And that was the nicest thing of the whole property was the sign. Yeah. And he said, what do you want to call it? And I said, you can call it anything you like. It's your club. He says, I want to call it Gillies. And I said, I like it. <laughs> so I'm thinking, you know, he's going to take Shelly's off of it, which is called Shelly's. He's going to put Gillies. And sure enough, when I drove by and I saw that Gillies going up, I'm thinking, I can't believe this. Wow. Right after we opened the club up, about uh, three months or four months into the club, I had a furniture company call me and wanted me to do a TV show to advertise their furniture. And at that time, Channel 39 in Houston had uh, uh, all the country music segments on Saturday night, starting with Porter Wagner. And I think it's 6.30 or something. And they carried a whole line of country music shows for about three or four hours. So I finally agreed to do this thing with them if they'd let me say something about Gillies. At that time, there was, wasn't infocommercial, so you couldn't make the advertisement about the club. But I could say... Hey, folks, I'll be playing 4500 Spencer Highway, Gillies in Pasadena, Texas. You'll hear music like this if you come see us. And I'd be doing, you know, a song like she called me Baby Room Full of Roses or one of Jerry Lee's tunes or something like that, you know, yeah. at the piano. And uh, um, the club started really click then. And uh, then when I, I went to the club one night after doing the TV show, and I saw how this lady heard me do She Called Me Baby all night long. She called me over and she says, the day on your TV show, you did my favorite song. I said, what was it? She said, she called me baby. And I said, that's a Harlan Howard thing. She said, I know I'm in the jukebox business at records out of print. And I want you to record it for me. I said, for what? She said, I got 300 jukeboxes. I'm going to put it every one, on every one of them. At that time, I wasn't really interested in making records because the club was doing good. The TV show was doing excellent. And I was the front runner. And then after I finished my performance, Porter Wagner come on and then uh, Wilburn Brothers and then went on and on and on down the line, you know. But my show was picking up steam because uh, people was tuning in to see what the heck we was going to do next because I didn't know what I was doing. And I had a 30-minute show, and I was trying to write it, produce it, sing on it, the whole bit, you know. So it, it was um, it, it was um, something that people just wanted to tune in and see what was going to happen next, I guess. Yeah. The show got popular, and then that's when uh, I, when I went in to record She Called Me Baby, and the bass guitar player, you know, wanted to know what I was going to do for the flip side. And I said, let's do the old song, Room Full of Roses. And then that's when I said, you know, it's going to sound like my cousin Jerry Lee after I made the started in the song. And uh, he said, who cares? It's going to be the B side. Nobody's ever going to hear it. So that's the record that came out. And bingo, my first hit. After the record went number one for me, we had booked Conway Twitty at Gillies. Conway's coming down to the club. Wow. He's hearing Room Full of Roses because I got a number one song. Now, at this particular point in time, Conway Twitty's got more number one songs than the man on the planet in 1974. Yeah. He's going to play Gillies, but he hadn't put two and two together and figured out that Mickey and Gillies are one and the same. But he hears me when I go up on stage because I open a show for him. And he hears me do Room Full of Roses and all of a sudden it clicked with him, you know, hey, this is the guy that got the record. Hmm. I went back to say hello to him. The first thing he asked me was if I had an agent. I said, I don't think so. He said, I have somebody down here to talk to you. And I'm thinking, Conway Twitty's going to have somebody down are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, I mean, I had people blow smoke at me all the time. You know, and I think it went one ear and one out the other. I didn't pay attention. But sure enough, two days later, this guy shows up. Jimmy J, Nashville, Tennessee, United Artist, United Talent is what it was. Yeah. And he says, I'm here to sign Gilly to a, a, a booking contract. Then I found out that Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn owned the agency. That's how my career got started. I remember opening the show for Conway Twitty and, uh, and I think, I, think we, I think it was in Denver, Colorado. And that's when I was traveling with Conway and Cal Smith and uh, 
and uh, I don't know, at Conway and sometimes Beretta. Bottom line was, uh, I can remember the first, one of the first shows I did with him, uh, the guy gave me a big build-up, you know, Playboy Records, here he is, with ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Mickey Gilly, and there's about, about six or 8,000 people out there in the auditorium, and about three of them went, <laughs> I'm going, oh my God, you know. But and I didn't get any applause until I hit Room Full of Roses. Oh, ooh, I know that song. Yeah. So at that time, just when it dawned on me, I got to work on my name instead of, you know, popularity of the person. Is what they they're looking for. So what what was that like touring with Conway and Loretta? One of the most awesome times of my life. I, he helped me more by explaining the the um, business as far as traveling was concerned, and uh, he helped me a lot. They, I, I cut a lot of corners by sitting down one night and talking to him. And I, and I traveled with him for about three or four days. And at the time that I was traveling with him, I told Big Joe that played the bass for him. He used to do all the talking with him. And I told Big Joe, I said, uh, I don't think Conway likes me. And he says, yeah, he does too, you know. I was traveling on the bus with him, and I was using a Twitty Bird band, you know, to back me up. Yeah. And uh, one night I, I asked him if I could chat with him a few minutes, and he opened up, and we became became pretty good friends. He was a man of few words. He was a man of few words. He didn't talk much. No, I but, know. But, uh, boy, I tell you what, when he had a Hello Darling or uh, uh, It's Only Make Believe and something like that, the crowd went nuts. Mm. And uh, <laughs> I didn't want to follow him. I, I had to follow him on some shows. I didn't want to. Because when Loretta was out there, when, when we had Loretta out there, it was usually it was me and uh, Cal Smith, Conway, and Loretta. And when Cal Smith would uh, uh, sometimes open the show for Loretta, or I'd open the show for Conway. So whoever, whoever opened the show, they got to, they got to open the second half for the, the, the star. And I had to do that in that can you imagine me trying to follow Conway Twitty after uh, it's only make believe in Hello Darling? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> and were you still? Working? I mean, I go and we want Loretta, we want Loretta. <laughs> were you still working the club through all of this as well? Do what now? Were you still working Gilly's Club through all of this at the oh, same? I worked it on weekends when I went book somewhere, but I was I was I was booked pretty regular out there on the uh, on the circuit. I was traveling with either Conway or Loretta, or I was doing some uh, single dates by myself. Because I started playing clubs when I put the band together. Yeah. After I quit working with, with the, the uh, coal miners or the Twitty Birds, uh, and then I started uh, my own group. Uh, so I started playing a lot of clubs. What's so I stayed the... pretty busy. So who would be in the club when you weren't there then? Well, we had the regular band, the Bio City Beats, and uh, uh, we had um, uh, Kenny Fulton and uh, Steve Michaels and Johnny Lee. Was, was still working the club. Oh, good. He was working the club, see, that's before he had any hits. Yeah. His, his hit was in the 80s with uh, Looking for Love. Ah. And out of all the music that we played, played in that film, Johnny Lee had one of the hottest records in that, in that soundtrack, Looking for Love. It was, uh, you know, number one in the nation. The hot song in the film, The Urban Cowboy. So when, when you were touring, say, for the first time with, with Conway, what's the biggest difference would you say from touring back then to what it's like touring now? Ooh, well, um, of course, my time in the limelight has sort of subsided. Uh, you know, I've, I've been there and done that, so to speak. But um, I can tell you that um, I didn't realize what the music industry was really all about until we did the film The Urban Cowboy with John Travolta. Yeah. 
that launched me and Johnny Lee as two of the hottest acts in country music in the 80s. And uh, that's when my life really changed because for the first time, all the showrooms in Reno uh, and, and Las Vegas, Reno, Tahoe, Atlantic City, uh, they all opened up for me. And, uh, you know, I mean, I was, I, I played the Vegas like uh, so much it was unbelievable. Uh, played the Desert Inn three weeks in a row. Wow. So it was just a, uh, uh, and and then uh, I went to Europe and uh, did the promotion on the Urban Cowboy. I came back and I got to work uh, at the White House for uh, uh, President Ronald Reagan. I got to perform thirty minutes show there for uh, all the people there in the, in the government and uh, and George Bush Senior. Um, so, so I played for two presidents. Uh, they, um, they they sent me out to California and gave me a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which was a tremendous honor. Wow! And then the scary part happened. They asked me if I wanted to do some acting. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm thinking, acting? Are you kidding me? I'm a country music singer, <laughs> but I, I I did the best I could, and I tried to try to. I did two uh, two Fall Guys, and I did uh, two Dukes of Hazards. I did two Fantasy Islands. I did a Mercy Road, and um, and of course we did the film The Urban Cowboy. So it, it's been an awesome ride to be 84 years old and still be here. This all of my friends are gone now. Well, we're still here. One of the fun times about my touring though, was, was touring with uh, Brian in Canada. I, I really enjoyed that. It was, that was a lot of fun. We, we had a good time and uh, I don't, didn't make you much money probably, but uh, it was an awesome time to be with you and, uh, and be uh, out there on the road traveling and uh, playing the music for the, uh, for the uh, fans that love country music. And, I, you know, I, I put 100% in my, my efforts to make the show as good as I can. That's the reason why I carry a seven-piece band, two girl singers, and a tech crew, and uh, and try to try to make it entertaining and interesting. Your show on the road today would stand up to anything that's out there. I mean, I I can picture it as clear as a bell going up to to uh, Reno, Nevada, going not and not yeah, in Reno when you were playing the the Nugget up there, going in there, and you had just broken your leg after you'd come back on the road after you'd had the been laid up for a couple of a few a few months and you come out there and with that leg pop up there in the scooter and i'll tell you something you started to sing out there and i fell off the chair i i was absolutely blown away that you didn't lose a lick through all of that stuff you kept everything top notch and it was amazing and you still uh, top notch it's great well, you know what my, my accident caused me to lose my hands i can't play the keep piano anymore but thank the good lord my voice held up did it ever. And, 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 I, and I'm still having a good time performing for the folks, even though uh, my friend Johnny Lee, you know, is dealing with Parkinson, so he can barely walk. Oh, but uh, we're still doing, uh, this will be the last year for the Urban Cowboy reunion tour that we've been doing. And it started about almost four years ago when I, when I got a call from my friend Clay Cooper there in Branson, and I just sold my theater. I hadn't sold it at that time, but I was getting ready. To, I had it on the market. And I had gotten out of the theater, and I wasn't playing Branson at all. Clay Cooper calls me up, and he says, Mel Tillis is sick, and I need somebody to fill in for Mel Tillis. And I said, well, good luck. And he says, no, I want you to come in and do the dates that Mel Tillis is dropping out on. I said, Mel Tillis is a big star. He said, well, you are too. I said, hey, Clay, I've been here for 20-something years now. I said, the people are not going to come hear me do it. I said, let me tell you what. If I can convince Johnny Lee to come in with me, we'll do the Urban Cowboy music for him, and maybe it'll work. And sure enough, I brought him in, and we did very good on the, the, the dates that we played for Mel Tillis. I mean, we, we, had, we had a good audience, 
had a great time. It worked so well that we took it on the road. And so this is uh, about three and a half years later. We've had a lot of fun with it. So this is the last year where the Johnny opens the show, I do my bit, and then we do the Urban Cowboy music together on the end. Having a problem with uh, Johnny walking, but uh, I'm hoping that uh, we are able to finish out the year doing the Urban Cowboy music. It's been a lot of fun. I bet. The one thing I've found so interesting about you is that even now after so many years performing, when you hit the stage, it's like a light switch that comes on and it is 100% from top to the end of the show. And not only that, that the show is like you've just performing fresh for the first time. When you come out and do a sound check, I've never seen any other artist give it like you would almost give it during the show, even during a sound check. And you see so many artists, they just kind of come out and they sing a little bit and they say, yeah, it's fine. But you come out <laughs> and every time you hit the stage, whether it's a sound check or the show, it's 150%. And it's really, really impressive. I, I put everything I've got into uh, what I feel like is uh, hopefully going to be an entertaining type performance for the people. And the main thing is, is to go out and do the best you can every time. So um, I hope that uh, I achieve that. And I've had a good time doing it. It's a lot of fun. And I still do. I, you know, I'm not, I, I don't like the word star. Somebody say, you know, you are your star. And I, no, I'm not. I'm a country music singer. And like I said earlier, you know, when, uh, uh, 35 years of being with the uh, with the little lady Cindy, and when I when I try to get the preacher to say, you know, will you take this worn out country music singer to be your lawful wedding husband? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I said, let's have fun. That's what you know. I had, I ain't got that many years left. I'm mean, I'm 84 years old, and I know that. I was I told my kids. I said, look, all the people in the 1700s are gone. All the people in the 1800s are gone. All the people in the 1900s are dying. By the time we get to 2095, guess what? Then I'll be gone. So think about it. <laughs> Listen, some of that, some of those band members you have with you, you've been with, they've been with you a long, long time. My band leader's been with me, uh, what, fifty-six years, I think. Wow. I think it's fifty-six, if I'm not mistaken. He's worked with we've worked together. Now, most of most of the guys have been there twenty to twenty-five years, uh, because when I went to Branson. Uh, I, um, I put together, um, the, the group that I have, I had, uh, and I had four horn players and the two girl singers. And, uh, I've tried to always keep the, the, the girl singers, uh, with me so that we could do a lot of different variety in the music that we try to do. O only duet I had that was number one was Paradise Tonight with Charlie McLean. But, uh, you know, we, we still, I still enjoy doing, uh, duets with the girls and, um, I'm hope, hopefully that um, I'm going to get a chance to get back in the studio and do some new material coming up pretty soon. I, I don't know. Uh, it just depends on my health, too, and how I feel. But uh, I'm, I'm thinking about doing a couple. What One more run and some new material that will be uh, fun. Excellent. So I, when I'm gone, my, my family will have it. I own three or four albums of my own right now. So That's it's good. in the making. I'm working on it. Good. I've never heard in all these years I've been in the business, somebody sitting in front of me saying, I'm 84 years old. I'm about to go in the studio and do some new recording. <laughs> I think that's absolutely fabulous. I love it. That just, because I know you can walk in that studio and do it and you can do it the way that you used to do it. And it sounds as good or better than it ever did. It's the real well, I think my vocals are better because I've learned to be a better uh, 
performer as far as uh, relating to the music and uh, uh, the microphone. You know, that's what I admired about Elvis so much because he could take a, a microphone in a recording studio and you, and you felt like he was singing right to you, you know, and that's what I try to achieve when I go in the studio now. I, I just got through doing a, a, a song with uh, Ronnie McDowell and uh, um, he uh, called me the other day and he said, hey man, you, you, knocked, you knocked it out of the park, you know. Well, I said, Ronnie, I did the best I could on it, you know. I said, I hope that it's good for you. So, uh, and I, I just enjoy, I just enjoy the country music feel and, and the music. And hopefully I'll get a chance. Uh, I want to go in the studio and I got some ideas on a couple of things I want to do. And, you know, you know, the old song, Bring It On Home, was an old bluesy tune. It was number one for me in record single of the year back in 1976. I got a couple other songs that I'm really, really hung up on. And uh, everybody that I throw them at, they say, yeah, you think it'd be a great idea. And I said, I want to do them country. They're, they're not a country song, but it's good lyrics. And, and one of them was by Elton John. The other one was by um, um, I'm trying to think. The other guy. I'll think of it in a minute. I'll tell you. Oh, and Lionel Richie. Yeah. And uh, you know, uh, I, 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 I listen to some of the writing that they've done. You know, and I, I, I want to do something a little bit different. Yeah. I got some ideas, uh, and it, I want to do it and make it fun. Not that I'll ever have a hit again. Somebody said. Are you trying to get it? No, I'm not. I'm not out there trying. I just want to do something that's that's good. And with the internet now, who knows? You know, if if somebody likes it, you know, it could it could bounce in there. Certainly. Well, God only knows. They need some <laughs> solid recording out there, and especially right now, people are looking to get a hold of some great memories that they can relate to. And this is that this is so good to hear that you're going to do that because I know a lot of people will like that. I mean, well, I've, I've got uh, I've got some things a little bit different, and I, I want to make a run at it uh, to have a different thing out there on the on the market. Um, I, I did I did one thing called a, a, a CD called King Down the Road. It didn't do very well, but uh, it's got some material on it that I did back in the, the early years. But I want to do another one, and uh, then I want to combine the things that I think is really really something that I think people will enjoy. And I, I put together a, a love song collection not too long ago that I hadn't tried to promote it, but um, I tell the people when I we sold it at the, at the on the road, and I tell them if you buy if you buy the CD, don't put it in your car and start driving down the freeway. I don't want you to go to sleep because they're all ballads, but they're love songs. Right. And um, I hope to do something that's going to be a little bit different this time. When do you, are you going to go back into Branson again this year? Hopefully it, as the fall hits with the Urban Cowboy Show, is that the plan? The plan is to open up in September at my old theater that I sold to, uh, uh, of all people, a guy from China. <laughs> but anyway, I'm supposed to go back in. Uh, me and Johnny are supposed to open up uh, in the middle of September, uh, September, October, November, if we get through this thing. And we're working two days a week. We're working Sunday night and Monday afternoon. And this is the last thing that we're going to do together as far as uh, the urban cowboy music. Not that we, if he's able to still book on the road, I told him, I said, Johnny, we'll still do the shows together if you want to, but we're not going to do the urban cowboy reunion thing anymore. Uh, it's uh, because the way it, way it opens up is Johnny opens the show. Then I come out and do my bit. We do about 45 minutes a piece that we do the urban cowboy music at the end, which is about 30 minutes long, 20, 20 to 30 minutes long, depending on how many songs we put in, in the, the medley. Yeah. And, then, and it's in a med and the two girls that help us do the, the whole thing. We put the whole thing together. And um, 
I said, you know, we, we've done it now all this time. It's time to move on to something different. So we go back on the road together. He'll be doing his music in the front where he'll be saying, looking for love and Cherokee fiddle and all these tunes. And I'll, I'll be doing standing by, stand by me at the end of my performance, like I always did in my, my show. And uh, I'll do the urban cowboy music that I do in my shows, like I always did. So, uh, but we're not going to do the urban cowboy medley of tunes at the end. We're going to do away with that. Sounds there, great. We've been done it. We've been done it all this time. It's time time to move on. So, Maybe I get some of that new stuff in there that I'm going to work on. Yeah, you should. <laughs> so, Mick, if you had a choice, would you prefer? Do you like sitting in Branson and doing the shows there, or do you prefer the road better? What What, what are well, the two? The only thing that I enjoyed about working in Branson was because I was working a controlled situation. We had our own theater, and everything was uh, in place. And you got a controlled environment. You got your sound like you want it. You got everything set up. And uh, you walk out on stage, you do your thing, and you go home and you sleep in the same bed every night. Now, that's wonderful. Because at the time, uh, Branson was hot. And uh, we, were, we were packing the theaters. I was making enough money to pay the band. I was getting my, my feel of playing the music that I wanted to play. I got to do a lot of different things because I had a four-piece band. I had a seven-piece band, two girl singers, and a four-horn section. I even I was doing I even did a Sinatra tune in the show of all things the way you look tonight I was you know I was doing every, we were doing everything yeah and uh, I was having a blast playing golf all day doing the shows at night get my airplane and fly to Houston and take care of my mother in law's garden at the time and going back same thing routines over and over and I was I was living life I had the American dream by the tail until I fell yes <laughs> so. Let, let's talk about that. What the story is, you were helping a friend move a couch. Is that correct? I was moving a little bitty love seat uh, from one house to the, to the next house to go into a, uh, um, they were going to have a yard sale and I was going to take it out and sit it over in the other garage. And uh, I picked up one end. It was maybe weighed, maybe weighed 45, 50 pounds all. And the guy I played golf with all day and picked up the other end and, I was, and I'm walking backwards. I stepped in a flower bed and I fall. It fall very far. It must have been about, um, it's about, I'd say three, two and a half, three feet. Yeah. The, the ledge, and I stepped in there and I fell backwards, but I landed on the back of my neck. And uh, in all essence, I should have probably died because I, I think I, they didn't think I'd ever be able to use, work, use my neck. I remember when they had, uh, they, they, came, they came in after I went through rehab and everything else. And the doctor, when he came in, he says, uh, I'm going to make your day today, Mr. Gilly. I'm fixing to move that neck brace that I had on. I couldn't move. And tears started running down my cheeks. Because I had the use of my, my neck, I could, I could move it. Yeah. It's not, not fully uh, functional like it was before I fell. At least I can, you know, and I can walk. My hands, my hands are the most problem with, for me. Yeah. This hand here is partially paralyzed. But... Um, you know, I, I can drive my car. Uh, I can get out and mow the grass with the riding mower. So I can do a, a few things. I just can't do what I used to do. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not going to complain because I've seen a lot of people a lot worse shape than I'm in. Are you still flying too? I lost my, lost my, uh, my medical to fly. I can't, I can't, uh, I, I can't um, fly anymore. Although when my son's got his, Licenses, uh, I can copy the clearances, things like that for him, and talk on the radio and talk to the controllers. I'm used to that. But other than that, uh, I just sit back and relax. 
<laughs> I, I, I did, did buy another airplane, by the way. Oh, uh, I, I bought a, a, it's called a Mooney rocket. So we don't take off, we launch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, were talking, you were talking about the days of Branson at the theater and being technically happy with everything. I still remember going into that theater and seeing the only show I was ever at that you actually recorded the show and people could actually leave there with the DVD in their hand of that show that night. I'd never seen that ever in my life. And that was, that was, that was, that was a first. I mean, it was huge. Brian, I got to tell you that I got the idea from Boxcar Willie. When the theater burnt, I went across the street to try to finish up some dates that I had booked in Branson. And I thought it's going to be out of Branson to be over with. And, um, Bottom line is I had some insurance on, on the building. So I, I went to the guy that's holding the paper on the, on the, on the uh, theater. And I told him, I said, if you leave the money in there, I'll rebuild it and I'll come back in uh, and open back up. And that was in, uh, uh, it burned in 93, I think. We opened back up in 94. So I spent a year in Boxcar Willie's Theater and he had a video set up with screens up and you could uh, see what was going on. And, um, I saw that and I'm thinking, this is awesome. So when I rebuilt the theater, I said, we got to have that. So what I did, I, we set it up and I tried to fix it so that we could get uh, a lot more out of it than what Boxcar Willie was doing with it. So I enhanced it. You sure did. So, so the, uh, we, had, uh, we had the cameras with it on the wall where the, uh, we had a remote control like you do an airplane. And the cameras go up and down and they focus it the whole bit, you know. And... Uh, then we got the idea that if we shoot the audience, they're going to want to copy this video. So we would, we would, uh, we would shoot the audience and we'd make, they'd make fun. You know, when we got, we got some things going back and forth, whether, you know, uh, uh, watch your hands and stuff, it, just a lot of stuff that they put on there, you know, yeah. and if somebody walked down the aisle and they would make them real fat, you know, and but, but it was just a fun thing, you know, and people, people say that, you know, or, uh, get a room, you know, if there's a woman, that, you know, doing a kiss or something. So uh, they would see these things and we'd shoot the whole, everybody in the audience. And if they saw themselves on the screen, chances are they're going to buy a copy of that tape. You bet they did. And so that, that was just extra income for the theater. Mm. And, uh, um, and we taped, we taped uh, the beginning of the show. Uh, and then at the intermission, we would tape the audience. And then we'd tell the people, you know, we got to count down, you know, come back in for the second half. And uh, it worked very well. I used to get up in the middle of the night because I lived in the back of the theater for a long time. I used to get up in the middle of the night and run the extra tapes for them because we were selling so many. Wow. Duplicating. How many shows would you do a week on, in the heyday? And I think we were doing uh, six, we was playing six nights and sometimes we were doing two shows a day. Wow. So, uh, and when I, it was me and Joey. What happened was when I first went to Branson, I went around to uh, some of the places and uh, everybody said, what are you going to do in Branson? You know, how are you going to survive this Branson scene? And I said, I don't know just yet. I got to figure this out. So the first thing I did was, and I'm thinking, they're not going to come to the theater and hear me sing the 17 number one songs I've had over and over and over and over and over. I got to have something that's going to be entertaining. I said, I need some comedy in the show. So I went, I went down to uh, the, the Prestes and the Ball Knobbers, and I saw what they were doing. And they had some slapstick type stuff in there, you know. Yeah. It wasn't my type of comedy, but it was, it was 
it was entertaining. It was funny, you know, yeah. and the people enjoyed it. So uh, I happened to go to another show and I saw this guy by the name of Joey Riley. And um, he did one joke and he played steel guitar and he played fiddle. And I said, if I could get this guy to come with me, I think that uh, I could uh, probably make Branson work for me. And uh, his name was Joey Riley. And I worked with him 17 years. He died of colon cancer at 43. But uh, I even had a comedy tape that I put out on him because, uh, you know, the skits and things we did. And the, one, of the, one of the funniest things that the, the joke that he pulled at the time that I'd heard him was uh, the, uh, uh, his name was Jim Owen. And he says, uh, I'm going to do some cowboy music for you folks. In fact, I'll let the band name a cowboy. And so they went around naming a, a singing cowboy, starting out with, the, you know, like Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, uh, Tex Ritter, you know, on around the deal, yeah. the horn. And they skipped over Joey. And Joey said, wait a minute, you didn't name me. You didn't let me name a cowboy. And he said, you're a little bit young to know the cowboys. And he says, I know all of them. He said, I used to play for them. Really? Well, name one. Roger Starback. And when he said that, I like to fill off the thing, you know, because Roger Starback was a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> and I think this, this guy's funny. <laughs> and, uh, and he asked me, he says, uh, well, what happened to that job, Joey? And he says, I got fired. And he said, for what? He said, well, the coach came over with a football. And he says, hey, Joey, can you pass this? He said, I don't think I can swallow it, coach. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it was just, it, it, to me, it was funny. And I said, I need to talk to this guy. So I went to, went to Jim Boy and I said, uh, you think Joey would be willing to play steel guitar and make me fiddle on my, my night shows? If he, or is he working a night show? And he says, talk to him. So he gave me permission to talk to him. And I went over and talked to him. And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll go to work with you. And so he came to work with me, and uh, about three months later, he quit Jim Owens, came right in, and I raised his salary up to the point that uh, he could make it without having to work with anybody else. And uh, we worked 17 years together. Wow. Oh, he was something else. I, I yeah. had the chance to see him. And, and, he, and he, did the, he did the old joke uh, that uh, they, the Sinatra, these fellow Sinatra, he went into the limousine business, and he come up one day and he, uh, to the uh, theater, and this is an old joke, but it was funny, you know. He, he drives that limo up to the, to the um theater and he says hey Gilly gotta come in and see what I got so I went to the door and I walked out and he's a big long beautiful limousine you know he says what do you think and I says I'm paying you too much money <laughs> and he kind of laughed you know, a little bit and he says uh what do you think and I says you know what I've had to ride in the back of one of those limousines all this time I said I want to drive one he said no problem he takes a little cap on his and he said put the cap on and get in there so I went behind the seat you know and he got in the back seat I tore out of the parking lot and I got pulled over by the cops. <laughs> cops come up, looked at me, and he says, uh, okay, you know, and he goes back to his party and says, Well, what, what, what happened? Did you give him a ticket? He says, Kate, he's too important. Who was it? I don't know, but he's got Mickey Gilly driving for him. And the crowd <laughs> went nuts. <laughs> There's things like that, you know. Yeah. So uh, that's the reason why I lasted so long in Branson, because we were doing the entertaining and we'd go on and on and on. And uh, he would, he would, every time he would, Stick a fork in me, you know, the people would go crazy. Like he came on the stage one night and he says, uh, I wrote this perfect country song, Gilly. I said, really? He said, yeah, you might ought to record it. You ain't had a hit in a while. And the crowd went nuts <laughs> because, you know, here he's talking, talking to me. I, I'm supposed to be the star of the show, but he said, you might ought to record it. You ain't had a hit in a while. And I said, oh, really? Well, how good is it? He says, it's, it's great, man. I wrote it. You know, it's going to be good. I said, well, let me hear part of it. I said, does the band know it? And he says, never heard it before. I said, how are they going to play a song they never heard before, Joey? He said, they play a lot of songs they don't know. 
<laughs> and so then, then he went on and on, you know, and I said, okay, let me hear the song, you know. And then he said, I went down, down to the river, band playing, you know, forward, you know. I took off all my clothes. And he turned around and looked at me and I said, okay, okay, you've done pretty good so far, you know. I said, and I laid him in the grass and I waded out in the water and he came up to me and I said, wait a minute, you can't say that. And he says, knees. The grass and knees don't rhyme. He said it wouldn't rhyme if that water had been deeper. <laughs> so stuff like that was getting away with, you know. And it, it, it made the show more entertaining and interesting because then I might, you know, I might turn around and do a, a song or have Joey do a song or one of the band do a song. But anyway, it kept people wondering what we was going to do next, you know. And that's the reason why I lasted as long as I did in Branson. And I learned to be a better performer by doing that. Well, that's great. One of the stories you shared with me on the road that I, I never forgot this, that when you were down there and laid up and out of, out, of, um, out of the scene for a while, recovering from the accident, you paid each and every person in that theater right down to the person that made the popcorn when you were away from there and, and were the whole place you kept on salary during all that time. And I never forgot that. That's, that's Yeah, uh, I, 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 my, my heart's bigger than my pocketbook, really. And... <laughs> Like I told, I told my banker, I said, you're not going to believe this. I said, I have paid this theater off three times. I'd borrow money, I'd pay it off. I'd borrow money, I'd pay it off. I'd borrow money. I, last time, I said, I'm selling it, I'm out of here. <laughs> well, there's very, very few people in this industry that would ever do that. I think that's a real, that's a real pat in the back for you, and I can see why those people are so loyal to you, because yeah. you're very loyal to them. So. Well, I've... I, I, I like to share, you know, to me, uh, um, uh, that's what we, what we learned in school, sharing. So, you know, you need to share a little bit, you know, of your success. And, and, and I, I've, I've done very well. Uh, I'm not rich by a long shot. You, you look at, don't believe what you read on Google about how, how wealthy I am, because it's not true, but uh, I've done all right. And uh, I can't complain. That's well, I've shared some really fine Canadian brew with you over the years that you've had on that bus and you've always been very outgoing and very hospitable with it, and i've always appreciated it <laughs> you know there's two things that I, I love in my life and that's a good cold beer and a good shot of crown there you go there. <laughs> and, I, and i got spoiled on xr so uh oh I, I moved up i moved my class up a little bit <laughs> and that's expensive oh boy you it's bad. good stuff so but maybe- y'all, y'all make a great whiskey Oh yeah, oh, Canada yeah. makes a great whiskey. Definitely, oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a uh, crown. I'm a Crown Royal fan, big time. That's yeah. the only thing I buy. <laughs> we are too. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So we won't take much more of your time, Mickey. We appreciate it. I got. I hope I got 20 years left, Darren. I hope I got 20 years left. Oh, you I certainly do. Yeah. Let's see what I'll be 104. Oh yeah. <laughs> So, Mickey, do you have any place that you've always wanted to perform at that you never have um, or any place in the world that you've always wanted to travel and perform? Is there anything left on your bucket list? I don't think I've ever played Carnegie Hall, no. but I um, I played the Copacabana there you oh, go. in New York. Now, that was quite a thrill, being a country act when the Urban Cowboy was hot. Yeah. Thinking about all the big times, you know, and all of the uh, people that, that played there, like Bobby Benton. 
And uh, I'm thinking, wow, this is awesome, you know, to be a country act. Oh, boy. So um, I got to play for two presidents. And uh, what was that like playing for the presidents? What um, I had, uh, I think, thirty minutes. They told me they wanted me to be off in thirty minutes, and I had to adhere to the time. That was the only thing. I just went out and performed like I did, you know, at place else. I just yeah. set up and we sang, and uh, I got to give him a cowboy hat. Oh, great! And I got to meet uh, uh, Ms. Reagan. Yeah, Nancy. I'm trying to be, you know, I mean, president and the first lady. Yeah. So th- that was awesome. I, I was just, I was very proud that I had the chance to do that. I guess. Get the White House. Excellent. It was a good one. We loved him up here too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so did you ever think in your lifetime of performing and being on the road that you'd, you see anything like the situation we're in now with, with this COVID and, and not being able to perform and all these places closed down. How do you feel about that? Well, I felt like that uh, when we came out of the depression, I was just, uh, I, my, my mother just had, I was born, you know, in 1936. So we were coming out of the great depression and uh, the, the, I was raised in, in a very poor family. I wasn't used to having a lot, but uh, you know, as we went along in life, things improved and improved and improved. And this is the first time I've ever seen anything like this in my life, and it's been devastating. I uh, I was outing, uh, getting ready to open in uh, at the Riverside Inn in, uh, in Laughlin, Nevada, when uh, I went down and had breakfast. I'm thinking we're getting ready to set up. I get a call, my agent, shows are canceled. And I'm thinking, wow, we got California booked, we got Laughlin booked, we got Colorado booked. They all dropped out. So it went down the hill fast. And I after driving out there and doing uh, uh, two dates, um, turning around and going back to Branson to the bus. Yeah. So it's been devastating. And well, most devastating part though is all the people losing their life over this virus. Yeah. And I understand that, you know, and I, I want people to be as safe as they can. And I want, um, I, don't, I don't know what's gonna happen. I really don't, you know, just day by day. It's, it's awesome. been devastating. Yeah, I don't think any of us know what's going to happen. And as you say, you just take it day by day and and hope that we can get back and start performing and the musicians can start playing and the technicians can start doing what they do. And it affects so many people. Well, when I first came to Houston, Texas, back when I was 17 years old, I didn't have a nickel to buy a candy bar with. And uh, I'm, I'm very happy that I'm still on the face of the earth and I'm still doing quite well as far as my health is concerned. Not as well as I like, but I'm not going to complain. No. And as far as um, financially speaking, I'm okay for the time being. If it goes on for another uh, year, uh, I'll probably be broke. But uh, other than that, I'll just keep day by day. Oh, that that the new album is going to be. And when I need something to eat, I'll, I'll come down and see Brian. There you That's go. Right. <laughs> There's always a, a a bottle of XR on the bar, and we've always. Been <laughs> worries <laughs> you got it buddy you got it well uh, but uh, i must say the most fun fun time of my uh, my uh, uh musical career and i'm not saying it's because he's sitting there but i had a really really great time in, in canada working with brian it was it was an awesome time and you darren thank you it was uh, unbelievable and you helped us with the sound a whole bit too you know i appreciate that thank you we had lots Look, of fun doing it again you get this disease out of the way and up we go We're right. <laughs> Well, well, I tell you what, you know, um, 
I'm always available if you, if you got something you want me to do, let me know. Perfect. Well, we appreciate you. Yeah. We appreciate you taking your time. And I must say for 84, your memory is as sharp as ever. I can't remember what I did yesterday. And you, you... <laughs> well, I had a hard time remembering Lionel Richie a while ago when I was talking about his music, but uh, that was the I only thing. Yeah. It's I, I got to go see the guy and, um, you talk about an awesome show, man. I, I really enjoyed his performance. And uh, uh, I'm not a big Elton John fan. I went to see his show, and the crowd went just bonkers over him, you know? Yeah. And I look at it like when you go to some place that you're not a fan of somebody and you see what kind of reaction the audience will give a, a certain entertainer, you got to admire that. And, and if I had to say something nice about Elton John is that he's an awesome performer and entertainer. He has some great music. Not my style of music, but those people loved it, you know? Yeah. When he started doing that uh, rocket song, I said, you know, if I had a rocket, I'd tie it to him and send him out of the building, you know. And I was doing it as a joke. Yeah. But the, you know, the people went crazy over the song. Oh, yeah. But it's not my, you know, some of the music. I'm, I'm sure that when people hear the girls get pretty close down, they say, I don't want to hear that song again, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So who would be, before we wrap up, who would be your favorite all-time singer if you had to pick one or two people? Uh, who would Who would that be? Now I I would have to I'd have to go back to the point of first time I heard Elvis Presley sing I was very impressed. Yeah. Of course I mean I was impressed with my cousin Jerry Lee Lewis too I think Jerry Lee is a great talent. Sure. But out of the out of everybody that I've ever heard perform uh, Elvis was one of my favorites. That's great. I, I was a big Elvis Presley fan. Yeah. Still am today. Yeah. Love his music. I I, know, I like the Beatles too but uh, I I really like the I mean. I can remember hearing Heartbreak Hotel and, you know, cranking the radio up, you know, when I was just back in the early years, the 50s. Unbelievable. Yeah, for sure. Mickey, it's been wonderful. I've looked forward to this thing for so long. When Darren said he had you all lined up, I was like a kid in the candy store. I was so looking forward to it. It was just great. Very, very good. Hey, thanks, Brian. Thanks, Darren. And I'm uh, looking forward to seeing you guys again. And, uh, hey, if I live long enough, I want to play that uh, place up there in Canada with you. Darren. Yes, you come to our, our theater and we love to Think about it often. Good. We got to do that. I got to do that before I pass. Sounds good. <laughs> we love to have you. Good to see Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye, Mickey. Bye, Mickey.